There is no sweeter sound than God's amazing grace. And we all need it. God's grace is His goodness toward undeserving sinners like us. And we all stand in need of His grace, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard and are justified freely by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And we have gathered today as brothers and sisters in Christ to praise His glorious name. So that as we continue our time of worship, I invite you to turn with me to the first chapter of 1 Timothy. The New Testament book of 1 Timothy, it's on page 932 in your pew Bible. Please follow along as I read this portion of God's holy word. 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 to 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of the Lord. And this is the same gospel that we preach today. In verses 3 to 7, Paul tells Timothy, in essence, to guard the gospel. And we studied those verses last week. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the redeeming work of his son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and raised again the third day according to the scriptures to make us right with God. That is the good news of the gospel. And and Paul tells Timothy in verse 5 that the gospel, the, the preached word, creates in us, by faith, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, all of which produce love. Love is the driving force, the compelling motive of the Christian life. It is the goal of all biblical instruction. But that goal is missed if God's word is mishandled. A misuse of the scriptures leads only to meaningless talk at best and eventually to something far worse because it draws people away from the glorious gospel. 
This was a problem in the church at Ephesus. Certain persons wanted to be known as teachers of the law, but they had no clue what they were talking about. They were mishandling God's word. They were not only ignorant, but they were arrogant because even though they weren't they didn't know what they were talking about. They were still making these dogmatic assertions. And Paul tells Timothy to tell them to stop it. Away with the human speculation and get back to God's revelation. And that is the great need of the church today. And the Holy Spirit tells us to do the same. If we are going to guard the gospel, we must understand how it relates to the law. And that's what the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul, addresses in verses 8 to 11. I hope that you have your Bibles with you. If not, I I invite you to use the Pew Bible. I think it's very important that we pay close attention to the Scriptures. Verse 8 says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. When Paul says we know that the law is good, he's, he's writing to Timothy. This was nothing new to Timothy. Paul wasn't telling Timothy something new. Both Paul and Timothy, as ministers of the gospel, knew the benefits of the law when it's used properly as God intended. And according to Scripture, the law has essentially two main purposes. To uh, reveal sin and to restrain evildoers. Paul talks about both purposes of the law in his book to the Romans, especially the first purpose, to reveal sin. The law shows us how we have disobeyed God and deserve to be punished as a result. And that's bad news. The good news is that Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly on behalf of everyone who would ever trust in him for salvation. He took the punishment for our sin, He lived a life of perfect obedience to God. And after he died as an atoning sacrifice for us, he rose victoriously from the grave, showing that he was superior over the law of sin and death. The law does not save us. We could try to be as good as we possibly could, and so many people live that way today. They think if the good in their life outweighs the bad, then somehow, some way, perhaps, maybe God will let them into heaven. But the Bible says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We all fall short of God's standard, and the only way that we can be accepted by God is through His beloved Son, who loved us and gave Himself for us, who lived a life of perfect obedience in our place. It is through faith in Christ and Christ alone that we are saved. Romans 8 3 says that God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. That God demonstrated, He showed, He he expressed His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the law isn't bad. The law is good. And Paul reiterates that here. He says the same thing in the book of Romans. The law isn't bad. The law is good. We're the ones that are bad. And the law reveals our sin and our condemned state before God. The God who is above us and the God who is against us. But the gospel reveals the grace of God toward us. The God who is not only above us, but the God who is for us. He is the God who is with us. That's what Emmanuel means. Emmanuel, God with us. And this package of salvation includes the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives in us and gives us the desire and even the capacity to please God as his beloved children. 
He creates in us, again, as Paul says in verse 5, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere, unhypocritical faith. And those internal gospel components that are produced in us through the Holy Spirit's work of conversion, all these things produce love. Love for God, love for neighbor. And as John Piper said, love is the grateful response. It is the overflow of our joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. And it's one of the surest indications that we have truly been born again by the Spirit of God. So the first purpose of the law is to reveal our sin so that we in desperation are driven to Jesus Christ for salvation. But there's a second purpose to the law. It not only reveals sin, but it also restrains evildoers. And this is the issue that I believe Paul is addressing in verses 8 to 10 of 1 Timothy 1. And he presents it by way of a contrast. Look again at verse 8 through the first part of verse 9. Paul says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. And that phrase, for the just, appears in the emphatic position. Paul says, it's not laid down for the just. And the just, according to this context, are those who have been transformed by God's grace. Christian believers who, through genuine conversion, are characterized by love. Now, this is important for us to grasp because according to Scripture, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is what we read in Romans 13, verses 8 to 10, where Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now who's Paul writing to there? He's writing to the church, he's writing to believers. And he's telling us that in our saved state, love is the fulfilling of the law. Of the law. Think of it this way. And I think it was uh, Ligon Duncan that gave this illustration. If we looked at God's law as a cup to be filled, okay, love is what fills that cup. And only Jesus Christ filled that cup fully. And that's why we are not justified by our works, by our works of love in general. We are justified by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ who completely filled or fulfilled the law on our behalf. But what Paul is saying here, that uh, even though God's love was exemplified supremely, supremely when Christ died on the cross for us, that he is the one that fulfilled God's law perfectly, now that we are complete in him, that, that Christ has met the law for us, therefore we stand justified before God, there is an ethical component to the Christian life. Because we have been given a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, all of which produce love in our lives, as we love one another, we are fulfilling the law in terms of our progressive sanctification. We're already justified through faith in Christ. But the evidence that we have truly been justified is that we live out the love of Christ in our lives. And love is the fulfilling 
of the law. It's the expression of our gratitude to God for saving us, and it is the clear evidence that we have truly been born again. So when Paul says that the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law, he's talking about believers. He's talking about those who have already trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. Douglas Moo writes this, Paul reserves the word fulfill for Christian experience. Only Christians, as a result of the work of Christ and through the Spirit, can fulfill the law. Now, here's the amazing thing we see in the New Testament. And you might have picked this up in Romans 8. You certainly pick it up in other passages, especially those that Paul has written. Ironically, Christians fulfill the law not by focusing on the law. Um, You know, do not steal, do not murder, do not covet. You know, we don't get it by focusing on the law. We fulfill the law not by focusing on it, but by fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law on our behalf. It's not by focusing on the law. It's by fixing our eyes on Christ and being filled with His Spirit who does the sanctifying work of God in us. The law of Christ is the law of love. Jesus said to His disciples, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Uh, So we are under a new law, if you will. We are under the law of Christ, and the law of Christ is the law of love. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, along with all the other Christ-like qualities that are listed in that passage. And that passage ends with Paul saying, and against such, love, joy, peace, etc., against such, there is no law. That is to say that as we fulfill God's law ethically in our lives through through love by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are fulfilling the law. So Christ fulfilled the law perfectly for our justification, and we fulfill the law progressively through the power of the Holy Spirit as our sanctification. Hope that makes sense. So the Christian life, in essence, is not a law-focused life. It is a spirit-filled life. It is a life that is focused on Christ. And when we do that, His Spirit progressively fulfills that law through us as we love one another. And that's why Paul says in verses 9 and 10, he says, verse 8, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, verse 9, that the law is not laid down for the just, that is for believers, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to to sound doctrine. So in these two verses, Paul is giving us a a portrait of godless human activity that is the very opposite of what the Holy Spirit produces in the lives of God's people, which is what? Love. You see that? 
And that's why I believe, you know, some would say, well, in this passage, you know, the law is not for the just, but, you know, for the godless and sinner. Well, nobody's just. It's talking about all of us. That would be true in terms of the revealing aspect of the law, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is describing those who have already been justified by faith in Christ. They have been given a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith, and they are living their lives out in love by the power of the Holy Spirit. The law is not for them. The law has already accomplished its work in them when they came to Christ. So Paul is talking about here about the restraining influence of the law that is so desperately needed in society because evildoers run rampant. There are people that are constantly breaking the law of God. We could say that the vices listed here don't fill the cup of God's law. They actually fill the cup of God's wrath. Because evildoers commit the very things that the law of God, summed up in the Ten Commandments, expressly forbids. In fact, this list actually follows the the same sequence as the Decalogue. It begins with general offenses against God and then moves towards specific crimes against fellow human beings. Let's look first at offenses against God. Again, please look at the text. Transgressors are described in verse 9 as lawless and disobedient. That is to say, they ignore, they, they disregard God's law, and they rebel against His authority by disobeying God's express commands. They are ungodly and sinners, which is to say they have no reverence for God, and they do constantly what displeases Him. They are unholy and profane which means that they have no regard for what is sacred, most evidently God's name, which they blaspheme, abuse, and take in vain constantly. This defiance toward God, which is their greatest offense, because against Him and Him only we have sinned, first and foremost. This defiance toward God expresses itself in crimes that are perpetrated against their fellow human beings. And that's what Paul goes on to list next. Paul says the law is laid down, look, for those who strike their fathers and their mothers. This is a a gross violation of the fifth commandment, right? The first four commandments show our relationship to God, beginning with the fifth commandment, how we relate to our fellow human beings. And the Bible says we're to do what to our parents? We are to honor our father and our mother. And this is a gross violation of the fifth commandment. That means uh, striking your father and your mother. And the term there can actually even mean to kill your father and your mother. He says that the law is laid down for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Secondly, the law is given for murderers, a clear violation of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. Next, the law is laid down for the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality. So this is a violation of the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Paul lists the sexually immoral in general, but then he gives a specific gross violation in particular, men who practice homosexuality. Sexual immorality includes any kind of sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. So this would include premarital sexual activity, what a lot of times people today call casual sex or hooking up. It would include prostitution, certainly. It would include cohabitation, that even if you're 
uh, somewhat dedicated to some individual that you're living with or dating exclusively, but you're having sex, but you have not entered into the covenant of marriage, that is sexual immorality in the eyes of God. It also includes sex by married persons with someone else who is not their spouse. Hebrews 13.4 sums up God's intent, his design, his standard for sexual morality or sexual morality and is accompanied by a warning. Hebrews 13.4 Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Powerful statement. And that's in the New Testament. And then Paul shares a subcategory of this, a subcategory of the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. This is one behavior among many that marks those who have never been transformed by the grace of God. Turn over, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it's the one other passage in the New Testament that uses this specific term for homosexuality, men who practice homosexuality. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Praise God, there is forgiveness for all sins, including homosexual actions, including drunkenness, including all forms of sexual immorality, including gossip, including slander. There is forgiveness for all these sins, but only for those who have been washed, who have been sanctified who have been justified by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that same Spirit produces in God's people what? Verse 5, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere, unhypocritical faith that issues forth love. So the Holy Spirit redirects our desires from gratifying self to glorifying God. And as we do that, we are fulfilling the law. Not because there's this list of rules that we have to fulfill, but because the gospel accomplishes in us and through us what the law, because of the weakness of our flesh, could never do. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Next on the list of evildoers in 1 Timothy 1.10 are enslavers. Other translations say slave traders or kidnappers. This is the worst kind of stealing, which includes all form of human trafficking. It's a horrific violation of the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. Next, liars and perjurers. A clear violation of the Ninth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then we have the catch-all phrase next. 
and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That's the catch-all statement. Everything else is contrary to false doctrine. Now you might notice that Paul in the general descriptions at the start of these verses, um, you know, lists offenses against God, which covers commandments 1 through 4. Then he goes to commandment 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. But he omits the 10th commandment, which is, you shall not covet. And it's only a guess, but my, my, I suppose that the reason that Paul left this out is because covet is something, it's really a sinful attitude, right? That would be very difficult, if not impossible, to punish uh, in society, right? It's an attitude of the heart that really isn't expressed in action until you steal something or you sleep with someone else or you kill somebody because you don't have what they have. So, so it's those outward actions that reveal our covetousness, but covetousness itself is a sinful attitude that cannot be punished by civil law. And that's why I think the restraining purpose of the law is what Paul is emphasizing here. He does the same thing in Romans 13, where Paul says that if you don't want to live in fear of the authorities, do what's right. But if you do wrong, be afraid because they don't bear the sword in vain. They are God's servants who carry out God's wrath against wrongdoers. Can you imagine how chaotic, horrific, and corrupt this world would be without the rule of law? Just imagine. No laws, nobody to enforce those laws. Imagine what this world would be like. About a decade ago, a movie came out that depicted such a scenario. It was a horror film about a future dystopian America which observes an annual event known as The Purge in which all crime, including murder, is legalized or decriminalized for a 12-hour period. Just 12 hours. You can do whatever you want. There is no crime. Everything is legal. I'm not suggesting that you watch the film. But there has been an attempt to depict just a smidgen of what that might be like in the neighborhoods of America if such a 12-hour period would ever be allowed. And I would submit to you that our imagination is sufficient enough for envisioning such a horrific nightmare. The key purpose, a key purpose of the law, is to restrain evildoers through the fear of punishment. And that's why here in 1 Timothy 1, 9, and 10, Paul lists the most extreme violations of the Ten Commandments. I think Phil Riken makes a really good point here in his commentary. He, he notes this, and I quote, He condemns not shoplifting, but kidnapping, not lust, but perverse sexual acts, not white lies, but perjury, and so forth. In fact, he chooses the kinds of gross sin that civil laws often prohibit. According to Roman law, most of these vices were punishable by death. The law has a serious purpose in restraining wicked behavior. This, Paul says, is why God gave his law not for idle speculation and meaningless talk. End quote. When you play fast and loose with the Scriptures which serve a very holy and God-honoring purpose, such nonsense is completely contrary to sound doctrine. 
to healthy teaching that the church needs and that people outside the church needs. Healthy teaching which comes from and is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Paul says in verse 11. And this takes us to the concluding point, the primacy of the gospel. In verses 8 to 10, we see the purpose of the law, at least one of the purposes of the law to restrain sin. But praise God, in verse 11, we see the primacy of the gospel. And that's what Paul talks about there. He says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. We've already summed up what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news that tells the glory of God, the blessed God. Typically, the word blessed, when we see it in Scripture, is used not in reference to God, but to people who have been blessed by God, a people who have experienced God's blessing, people on whom God has bestowed His blessing. But nobody bestows blessing on God. So when it says the blessed God, God is not the object of blessing that he is receiving from somebody else. The point here is that God experiences perfect happiness within the splendor of his own person. He is the blessed God. God would be fully happy in himself if none of us ever existed. He is fully self-sufficient, fully self-fulfilled in that sense. But the beauty of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that God radiates his splendor, his happiness, his beauty, his kindness, and his love through the gospel so that we can share in God's happiness forever and ever. That's the kind of God who reaches down and rescues sinful humanity. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says that God made his light shine in our hearts. Why? To give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Not because God needs to be made happy, but God wanted to create a people who would experience eternal happiness in him. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners for the unholy and profane, that he might bring us to God. And such were some of you. Such were all of us. But we were justified, we were sanctified, we were purified by Jesus Christ and by his Holy Spirit. As I thought about how this passage could be summed up in just a sentence, I thought, the law restrains sinners, but only the Lord redeems them. The law restrains sinners to an extent, but only the Lord redeems them. And once God does his redeeming work in the human heart, and the Spirit of Christ lives in us, we are governed by his love, which accomplished for us what the law could never do. I'm mindful of uh, something that John Bunyan, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, has often been attributed to. There's no uh, primary source that I know that, that directly proves this. But it's often attributed to John Bunyan who said, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Say that again and you'll understand the relationship between law and the gospel. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. I'm incapable of doing what the law requires. 
better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. And that's what God makes possible through the saving work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in every believer. This is the gospel, Paul says, with which I have been entrusted. 1 Timothy 1.11. The word gospel appears about 60 times in Paul's New Testament letters. And it appears on his lips in Acts 20, verse 24, as a summary of his life's purpose, where Paul testified, But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Well, as we wrap up these first 11 verses of 1 Timothy, we're reminded that we as believers must defend God's truth while at the same time displaying God's love. Speaking the truth in love. We must defend God's truth while at the same time displaying God's love. And would you agree that that is impossible to do in our own strength? And we see it all the time in individuals' lives and in the lives of many churches. Uh, Many that are, yes, defending God's truth, but there's an absence of Christian love. And there are other churches and Christian individuals that they're, they're big on love. It's love, love, love. But it's a love that is devoid of God's truth and they've abandoned the true gospel, the true word of Jesus Christ. But when you see a church that defends God's word and displays God's love and those two qualities are fused together, then you know that God is at work because no human being could ever do both at the same time to the glory of God. When defending God's truth and displaying God's love are fused together, We know that it's a gracious work of the one true God who uses that union of love and truth to bring more and more sinners to a saving knowledge of himself. And that gospel has been entrusted to us. So let us go forth and tell the good news of salvation to all creation. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this brief look at these few verses in 1 Timothy, would give us a greater understanding of what you have saved us from and what you have saved us to. Father, we know that the law is good, but there is nothing good in us except what you, by your grace, produce through the justifying work of Jesus Christ and the sanctifying influence of your Holy Spirit. Help us to continue to dig into these things and to grow in our walk with you that we might please you in all respects, that our love may be the fulfilling of the law and and that we might introduce more men and women, boys and girls, to Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.